In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Shrinks Pod. My name's Hunter Mulcair. And I'm Amy Donaldson. This episode is on a fascinating and at times controversial topic, autism. Generally speaking, it's a disorder with impairment in social behavior, language and communication, and also in the areas of play and behavior or interests. It emerges in childhood, it is lifelong, but fortunately with increased awareness and early interventions, the outcomes for people with autism are improving. Autism is a big topic to cover. There is a lot of research on it, despite it only having been first recognized in the 1940s and only a widely known diagnosis since the 1980s. So what we wanted to do with this episode was to give you a broad overview of autism. Hopefully by the end of this episode, you should have a good understanding of the symptoms and also some of the kind of relevant theories and ideas around autism. But we are going to go on record and say this will not cover everything. We were prompted to do this episode because we were recently on the School of Movies podcast where we were talking about an Australian stop-motion film by Adam Elliott called Mary and Max. And in that movie, the lead character has Asperger's syndrome. So we thought we would do essentially a companion piece to that episode and talk in the two shrinks way about autism. So... On the pod, we are going to cover in depth the symptoms and signs of autism spectrum disorder. We'll give you a potted history on how it came to be recognized. We're going to discuss some theories about what we think is happening, why it's happening. We're also going to discuss the neurodiversity movement and cover some myths about autism. And of course, we're going to finish up with our favorite segment, Things We Came Across. So, that's a, that's a lot, isn't it, Amy? So, uh, hello, Amy, how are you? <laughs> Hanging in there. Yeah, hanging in there. Yep. Currently, locked down as always. Uh, currently, our city is locked down. Amy, how long have you been working from home? Um, well, see, I don't know if I should do it in days or months, but we're coming up on the sixth month. Yep. 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 It's been a while. <laughs> I get to go. To, I get to go to the hospital to work. But anyway, um, you do. So I, I'm but a. You can't wear pajama pants. So. I wear, I've, I've now taken to wearing scrubs at work, which is basically work pajama pants. So um, if you've not listened to this podcast before, I am a psychologist that works in a hospital. I predominantly work with cancer patients. And Amy, do you want to tell us about you? Yeah, so I'm in community health and I work with children and adolescents. So at the moment, we're doing it all by video, which is an interesting experience in and of itself. Yeah, well, I, I, I work with people and I have to wear a surgical mask and then like a clear plastic face shield and yeah. sit two metres apart from them. So it's, uh, it's interesting. I don't know which is better or worse. Uh, I'm not sure. Anyway, so why that is actually relevant is because Amy and I have very different levels of experience with autism. So Amy, tell us, what's your experience with autism? I think for me, most of the time that I come in contact with people with autism is when they're referred to see me for something else. So it's usually something like depression or anxiety or sometimes obsessive compulsive disorder, other types of symptoms and illnesses that can surround autism. And we're going to talk about how 
common it is for this to happen. It's almost 90% of people with autism also have a mental health condition. So a lot of the time I see kids who are really anxious about something and they either have already got the diagnosis of autism or I meet them and go, hmm, there's something going on here Mm -hmm. and refer them to an autism specialist. How about you? Um, Well, given that I work in the health setting, you basically come across it because someone who's got another health problem and they've been referred to you because they've got either a mood or anxiety issue going on. Mm. So I've only had less than a handful of cases really, like less no more than five, I would say, mm. that I would have been would have come with a diagnosis of autism. So mm. then it's just been sort of interesting to work with someone who has that and kind of think about how I'm gonna go about doing my therapy because it makes for a different different way of working with somebody so it does so where we thought we might start is with a lot of people's first encounter with autism which is of course raymond babbitt played by dustin hoffman in the film rayman of course today's monday i i, I always drive the car on saturday I never drive on monday what is this who is this guy i don't know she jumped into the car yeah we can jump out i'm an excellent driver yeah that's good come on come on Why'd you let him get in this car? She's not a he, toy. He says he drives this car. Dad lets me drive slow on the driveway every Saturday. Of course, the seats were originally brown leather. Now they're pitiful red. You know, these seats were brown leather. So Rain Man as a film had a profound effect. Really, it was a watershed moment in terms of the social consciousness around autism and is still, even though that's a 1988 film, so it's, what, 32 years now, it still is one of the things that people go to. And particularly if you're of a, my generation, then you that's the thing that you would think about. But there are definitely newer and more accurate portrayals of autism within, within media that demonstrate the, the less severe end. Um, mm. And this is a clip from Atypical. I'm a weirdo. That's what everyone says. Sometimes I don't know what people mean when they say things, and that can make me feel alone even when there are other people in the room. And all I can do is sit and twiddle, which is what I call my self-stimulatory behavior. When I flick a pencil against a rubber band at a certain frequency and think about all the things that I could never do, like research penguins in Antarctica or have a girlfriend. I don't know. I'd like to go to Antarctica. It's quiet there, except in the rookeries where the penguins breed. <laughs> Those aren't quiet, no sir. I'm finished with my answer. I quite like the portrayal of autism in Atypical. It covers a far broader range of experiences and really shows that tension between someone who is both happy with who they are, wants to change some things, and then has a family system around them that's okay and in sometimes really not okay with the idea that they might want to change. Uh, it's quite, if you haven't watched it, it's worth watching. I know that there's sort of mixed responses to it, but I think it does a far better job than something like Rain Man, which really is quite a stark portrayal. Mm. It, there's not much about the positive sides of autism and it's blurred with all of these other issues as well as then with I mean all those family dynamics I find really complicated watching Rain Man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
so just to piggyback on what Amy's saying there, one of the things that we're going to talk about throughout this pod is that there is what we call heterogeneity in the presentation of autism. In English, what that means is there's huge variability in the way that autism presents. So one portrayal like Rain Man is, you know, gives an insight into what it might be like, but it's not the be all end all. Before we get started, an upfront comment about language. We're going to use language interchangeably. We understand that language around the label autism, autistic, person with autism, people are very sensitive about that. We're just going to apologize upfront. We're probably not going to be consistent with that. So when we're referring to all those things, we're, we're hoping that you take it as the, the label that you would like to take it as. Um, and when we were discussing this, we were having a think about how there are, you know, different people have different preferences about which one of those terms they're okay with. And so we decided we'd just, you know, try with the flow. Yeah, and try and offend everybody okay. rather yeah. than... <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and the final thing, uh, which we probably should have put at a different point, <laughs> given that the intro is rate and view the show if you like it, so... <laughs> Um, and if you want to find more out about the show, um, give us an email, uh, twoshingspod at gmail.com. You can also find us on our website, twoshingspod.com. Uh, we will pop in some links to some autism reading and resources in the show notes, so it's always good to check it out. So, with that lengthy introduction, Amy is going to take us through the diagnostic criteria. Yeah, I'm starting with the exciting bit. So... As always, when we cover a topic, we wanted to make sure that we went through the criteria of exactly what it is that we're talking about. And the criteria for autism is probably a little bit more prescriptive than what it is for some of the others. It's not the classic DSM thing of, you know, you can pick and mix from a range of five things out of nine. Uh, It's that you have to have a group of symptoms and it has to cover off a range of criteria within that. It's not really an optional thing. You can then be, you can then receive a severity rating as well, which provides some of that variability, but we'll go through it. In the DSM, it's called Autism Spectrum Disorder, and the first criteria is what they call a persistent deficits in social communication and social interaction across multiple contexts. So what this means is that the things that we're going to talk about now they can't just happen in one place. So it can't just be that you have difficulty reading other people when you're at school, but at home you're fine. It needs to be across multiple different areas and parts of your life. The first part of it is called deficits in social-emotional reciprocity. So basically what this means is that the back-and-forth flow of conversation is difficult. And so when you're speaking to someone who has autism, often it feels like you're going on one direction with the conversation and then their response veers off in another direction. Or things might be a little bit staggered, the pauses don't flow quite right, something feels a little bit off. It can also be that they're really focused on their own interests, and so it might be that they're kind of not meeting you on whatever you are interested in talking about. So it doesn't have that even feel of what you might see in conversation with someone who's neurotypical or who doesn't have autism. So here's an example from Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory. I'm Leonard Hofstetter. I called you about the apartment. You said it. I know what I said. I know what you said. I know what my mother said on March 5th, 1992. (laughs) What is the sixth noble gas? What? You said you're a scientist. What is the sixth noble gas? Uh, radon? Are you asking me or telling me? (laughs) 
Telling you? <laughs> Telling you. All right. Next question. Kirk or Picard? Oh, uh, well, that's tricky. Um, uh, original series over Next Generation, but Picard over Kirk. Correct. <laughs> You've passed the first barrier to roommatehood. You may enter. I quite like the um, depiction of, of Sheldon in terms that you see growth and change over time, but it takes quite a while as well. Mm. And that he's quite, he can be both rude and endearing in how he comes across with some of those things. There's a fair amount of discussion about why it is that a social interaction didn't go quite right when he's a bit confused and things like that. Yeah, I mean, he's pretty, he's very high functioning um, he is. in that kind of way. But yeah. in on the extreme end of that, what would you see with that? You would see things like, uh, I'm thinking about children that I work with where if I ask them a question, what did they do at school today? They'll respond with, did you know that some horses have spots? And it'll be this complete tangent or there might not be any response at all. And then the response will come after quite a while. Yep. It'll come after minutes. Yep. And sometimes the emotion doesn't quite match as well can sort of be laughing while describing something sad, things mm, like that. Sort mm. of seems just a little bit disconnected. Yeah, yeah. And also that failure to interactions, social interactions, that social group setting or something, and they might not quite get what the group is doing or what mm. you know, what's sort of appropriate in a social setting, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so they might just be standing off to the side, waiting to say hello and not sure when they should step in. Yeah. And just kind of, it's yeah. All, it all feels a bit clunky. Yeah, exactly. What you see in that clip as well is deficits in nonverbal communication, which is the next criteria. So the classic example with autism is differences in eye contact. So you'll meet someone who either holds eye contact really intensely or they kind of don't make eye contact at all or it's kind of looking down at their shoes and then every now and then taking a quick peek. Uh, and this is this is pretty common. It also ranges to things like body language, hand movements, things like that. And for people who have more severe types of autism, then there'll be a total lack of facial expressions or any of that nonverbal communication. So it'll just be sort of a blank, blank face, regardless of whether they're actually feeling, you know, happy or sad or whatever's going on. Mm. And I think when we spoke to School of Movies, we spoke about one element of this with one of the characters who describes that how is it that sometimes his mind is smiling but his face is not. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a perfect example of this, I think. Yeah. The last criteria in this cluster is deficits in developing, maintaining and understanding relationships. So this is about the fact that when we interact with people in the world, there's a whole bunch of social rules that we have internalised. So we adjust our behaviour to suit various contexts. We do things like we know that if we go to a job interview, we need to dress up more than we would normally. Or that if we go to someone's house, that we greet them when we walk in the front door. And so sometimes people with autism can have trouble knowing those social norms and knowing what to do. For little ones, there's things around play. So there's things like having a game going with, with someone else, but not allowing them to have any choice in what's going on. So they'll set the characters and things like that and they'll run with the narrative regardless of what the other person does. Mm. Or they won't have any imaginative play at all or it will be all sort of internal. 
it won't be that sort of thing that you see little kids doing of sort of going, you know, telling a story about, oh, and then the horsey did this and then yep. this happened. Extreme imaginative play is sort of using objects that aren't any way in shape or form, whatever the object is, like using two pencils and saying they're horsies and running them mm. around the, the table. Yeah, and so there's a, definitely a lack of, of pretend play in yeah. in. In people. Or it can be that's less social than what you would expect for their age. Yep. So kids gradually become more social. Kids with autism, that's sort of slowed or it doesn't happen so much. So they'll be playing on their own when all of the other kids are playing together. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think what's interesting about this, particularly this cluster, is that you can actually see in children that some of these behaviours are actually pretty standard for mm. children at particular ages. or at particular times so that, you know, you can definitely see some, you know, young kids that, and I've got kids who are under 10 and, you know, I can see them do, thinking about some of this, that they would do some of these things at times where they don't really do the backwards and forwards of the conversation or they they don't pay attention to the fact, you know, other people's eyes are glazing over because they're talking about Minecraft all the time or, (laughs) you know, they don't sort of understand about if someone calls you, you should you know, respond to them, you know, you shouldn't just talk about your thing or mm. they're playing a computer game that that other people might want to have a go. So, I mean, yeah. so, but the, that's the thing where Amy was talking about before, which is that these have to be present across all contexts mm. and pervasive rather than sort of one-offs. And they've got to match development. So that's the tricky thing about diagnosis as well is that it's got to match where would be typical development for a kid at that time so we slowly learn how to do that back and forth with social things we we slowly learn you know what's the appropriate thing in our culture in terms of eye contact it's not something that we just have right from birth it's something that we have to learn and so it's about the learning of that or the expression of that not quite matching what's going on with people around them yeah and that can be more or less obvious yeah for adults this one about maintaining and understanding relationships often comes out in some of those social rules and then also things like understanding of sarcasm and this is one that comes out in teenagers as well I have quite a dry sense of humor and it's the one probably that I trip up with most in therapy with teenagers because they'll say they'll try and dismiss something and go oh you know but that thing wasn't so bad and I'll go ah oh, no, it was just perfect. And they'll go, what? No, it was bad. My fish died. And I'll have to go, oh, no, sorry. Like I was being, I was matching that. Yeah, right. That's, that's <laughs> really interesting. Sarcasm. Yeah, sarcasm, yeah. sarcasm is, is, you have to be very careful as a therapist <laughs> to generally. You pay. really do. You really do. But so we've got another clip. This one is Moss from the IT crowd. Uh, misunderstanding, some euphemisms being used by Jen. Oh, and Moss, this is important, okay? I'm sitting beside Margaret. Margaret, from her name, I presume she's a lady? Yes. She's very nice. Um, She got divorced recently, but I should say when she's had a few drinks, she tends to get a bit overexcited. Need to go to the toilet a lot. Yeah, that happens to me. No. I try and think of something dry. That helps, like a desert or shredded wheat. No, Moss, you don't understand. What I'm trying to say is she's kind of... She's kind of on the lookout for a man. Oh, I see. What's he look like? What? He wouldn't come here, would he? Not with all these people around. What's this about? Jen's friend has got a stalker. Oh, cool. 
so you can imagine how that would that can interrupt uh, or make your life a bit more challenging. Yeah, um, and a lot of the people that I work with who have autism, particularly the girls, they go okay until they hit start of puberty. And all of the social interactions around them change and start to become far more, you know, they use more euphemisms, there's more sarcasm, there's more of that talking about other people or talking about social things and all of a sudden their friendships aren't going so well. Mm. And it's because this thing kicks in and the standard responses aren't working anymore. The learned responses that they've they've learned to compensate for, yeah. Mm. Interesting. The next cluster, cluster B in in the diagnosis, is kind of quite interesting. Restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, or activities. And so you have to have two of the following. So we're going to list off four. Amy, take us through it. The first one is stereotyped or repetitive motor movements, use of objects, or speech. This one is quite variable. So it can be things like uh, stimming, which is a physical repetitive motion that helps calm someone down. So that's like what was spoken about in atypical at the start, where he flicks the rubber band and that repetitive motion or flapping, flapping hands is often a pretty common one with mm-hmm. autism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can also be things like using idiosyncratic phrases. So things like I've, I've worked with a bunch of kids who will repeat particular phrases from American TV shows in the American accent and it will be out of context Mm. for what we're talking about or what's going on. And they'll repeat that same phrase a couple of times to sort of help self-soothe when they're stressed. Yeah, and in Rain Man, you sort of see one of the – where he's got like a bookcase that is all lined up, you know, and Mm. everything needs to be in a particular spot. That kind of thing is, is really, really common. And uh, if you're a something for Kate fan, echolalia, mm. which is uh, repeating of phrases, mm. you can have there's echolalia, but um, and then there's a thing called echopraxia, which is not an autism, but that's when you mimic someone's movement. Movements, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And the lining up toys thing is quite uh, noticeable in the little ones. Yeah, I can remember having a three-year-old come into my room and line up the entire contents of a toy box in size order across across my room didn't say anything just sat there and and lined it up and that's typically not what three-year-olds do in my room the second criteria in this category is insistence on sameness inflexible adherence to routines or ritualized patterns of verbal or non-verbal behavior this one probably you could say this is what the clip from rain man is kind of showing that there's particular days where he goes driving there's also what you commonly see is lots of distress about really small changes. So I'm talking things like only wanting to wear black socks and then the fabric of the new pair of black socks being different mm. and getting incredibly upset about that and being unable to calm down. Or things like wearing a particular item of clothing on different days. A lot of kids with autism have quite a restricted diet and often it's only white foods. So they'll only eat chips, white bread, apples, eggs, but not the yellow parts of the eggs, etc. Mm. Yeah. And what you notice is that it's really hard to come away from that routine, but then also there's that distress that comes with it if that's forced. Yeah. But, and if you do like a quick Google of like, you know, autistic child, 
only drinks from or only eats. Like you get all these hits come up. And certainly I've seen stories on social media around someone saying, you know, they don't make this bottle anymore or they don't make this thing. Can someone please help me? And, Mm. you know, even in some cases, companies, you know, making like a whole supply of something so that this problem's, you know, avoided essentially. Absolutely. Go to work. Turn right onto Page Street, turn right onto Buchanan Street. And when I get to Market Street, stop. Because I am not allowed to cross Market Street under any circumstances. Wait for the 321 bus to Stonestown Galleria. Remember to smile at work while I say, Welcome to Cinnabon. Would you like a Cinnabon? But don't repeat the words too quickly and make it sound different each time. Welcome to Cinnabon. Would you like a Cinnabon? Welcome to Cinnabon. Would you like a Cinnabon? 3 p.m. Study. Yeah, see how his mouth goes down. Okay. 4 p.m. Take Pete for a walk. When you see the man with the legs, it means you can walk. When you see the red hand, it means that you have to hold up your hand before you can walk. So that character is in her... I think early 20s and her entire day follows that same pattern every day and it both provides her with safety and kind of calming as well as being absolutely essential that she sticks to it so as the movie progresses and she has to vary from that it's really anxiety provoking for her mm-hmm. and it sort of reminds me that behavior if it's serving a function for anxiety management reminds me a lot of OCD obsessive compulsive disorder so, yeah. which is kind of interesting. So, and, and that's that's sort of what's interesting about disorders is that there's overlap in the way that they present, which is mm. interesting in of itself and complex for a diagnosis for a clinician to kind of pick up. So, absolutely. Next one is highly restricted fixated interests that are abnormal in intensity or focus. This is that people with autism often have a really strong attachment to particular objects or particular TV shows or toys or interests. So things like I'm only interested in understanding the black holes in space or I'm only interested in this particular type of butterfly. Or like Finnish architecture or bicycle maintenance um, or Thomas the Tank Engine. And my examples are all from like textbooks that I've read. Like they're, Mm. they're sort of the real example. So the really kind of acute focused stuff in Mary and Max is focused on a, a fictional TV show called The Noblets. And when we say really restricted and really fixated, I'm thinking about people that I've worked with who have had trouble with friends and with class and things like that because they aren't able to stop talking about a particular animal. And anytime the conversation goes anywhere else, they get agitated and bring it back to that same animal. And in therapy, we have to have allocated you know, butterfly time where we spend five minutes at particular chunks talking about just butterflies and then we can pause it and talk about the stuff we need to talk about in can, therapy because otherwise it's a whole hour of butterflies. Yeah. Can you call them papillons or does it have to be <laughs> butterfly? It doesn't go down too well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and which is interesting, isn't it? Right. Like it that's is. that kind of thing. And then yeah. with the last group here is hyper or hypo reactivity to sensory input or unusual interest in the sensory aspects of the environment. So, I mean, I know a little bit about this, that thing about being really sensitive to noise 
or to light or to I guess the the other one I've I've heard of is uh, touch like so mm. particularly in terms of fabric in terms of like clothes that you wear that kind of thing yeah absolutely and there are a bunch of kids who it's first picked up that there are things going on because they'll get really distressed say in a sand pit at childcare when they first feel sand or won't eat particular types of food because of the texture in their mouth that kind of thing and adults often learn how to suppress these things you know they learn that the responses from other people aren't necessarily helpful and so they try and sort of suppress them and then also this one it's interesting in diagnosing adults is that they're not necessarily obvious like with Sheldon that we played at the start you know his interest in physics could be seen as a career or it could be seen as he's completely obsessive and fixated on physics Mm. or the other person I was thinking about was the pathologist in bones and her interest in science and in facts could also be seen either way with that and so what it's about is not whether you have an interest that you're really into you know having something like that that you turn into a career or collecting memorabilia for something doesn't mean that you have autism it's about the intensity and rigidity of that which is shown in this clip from atypical again where he's speaking about antarctica (sighs) my mom says i'm about ready to pop when I'm stressed out, I like to recite the four prominent subspecies of Antarctic penguin, Adelie, Chinstrap, Emperor, Gentoo. Adelie, Chinstrap, Emperor, Gentoo. Okay, that works a little bit. Oh, now pay up, Mr. Card. Last one of the day. Those went really fast. I don't like this policy. I should be able to talk about Antarctica whenever I like. People need to know about it. Well, I think it's working. Because the less you talk about Antarctica, the more we can talk about our relationship. And plus, it makes you less annoying. Not to me. I find you adorable. But to other people. So I feel like that clip shows a couple of the things we've talked about. It shows the fixation on his interest and the not getting why people wouldn't want to talk about it all the time. And then it also shows a little bit of that mismatch. Like they're wanting different things in that conversation. <laughs> Sorry, Amy's cat's just walked over her shoulder she <laughs> on has. Zoom. Hello, are you joining us? <laughs> so those are the main criteria that speak about what autism looks like. There's then a bunch of things that go with it in the DSM. One of the things about autism is that it needs to be present from early on in development. So usually it's seen in toddlerhood for the first time, but it might not be picked up until later on. So this is particularly the case for... Uh, girls who are diagnosed they tend to be diagnosed later on in childhood than boys and we'll talk about that a bit more later as with a lot of the disorders in the dsm you need to have clinically significant impairment in areas of functioning like social occupational educational that sort of thing and it needs to not be better explained by other disorders so things like intellectual disability or a global developmental delay there's a lot of specifiers that can go with it which we won't go through because there's boring. <laughs> and probably the only other thing that I want to flag at this point is that it's not part of diagnosis, but I saw estimates between 70% and 90% of people with autism having a comorbid mental health issue like depression or anxiety. Mm. And almost half have two or more. Yep. So that's, you know, that de- definitely fits with my clinical experience of that being 
the main reason to seek help yeah. and then the autism kind of being just a part of the picture. Yes. I mean, so let me try and sort of sum up a little bit here. So if you want to think about autism or an autism spectrum disorder, it's two main things. It's problems in social communication and social interaction, right? And that's present across everything. And then there's this second set of problems, which is the restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interests or activities, right? So you mm. need to think about that. They have difficulty navigating that social world and they have these, what we would call odd behaviors, odd interests, odd activities. Odd as in unusual, not as in sort of pejoratively odd. Mm. Um, and then and that that it impacts you or the person from an early age and it's not explained by something else right so yeah that's right yes i mean so clinically sometimes talking through criteria can seem a little bit dry but given the i guess the discourse around autism and autism spectrum disorder we felt like it would be good to be forensic around it so you said before around the specifiers or or the idea about severity can you just sort Mm. of explain that yeah so you can meet each one of those criteria and then the dsm provides a bit of a structure for rating how severe the impairment is in each area. So this is things like, say, with the nonverbal stuff, you can get someone who has trouble making eye contact some of the time or has to practice and put a cognitive effort into it versus someone who is unable to make eye contact or face someone that they're speaking to or things like that. So it's it's a longer spectrum. Mm. And each domain, so the social and the repetitive behavior can be ranked on a severity scale. And this comes into play mainly in educational contexts and with getting funding and support and things like that. So you'll often in reports see, you know, someone has a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder level two, and that will mean that it's sort of a mid-range severity. Mm, mm, mm. And so I think that that gets into the variation in the way that someone can present. So it's there are multiple different ways in which these restricted behaviours can be or that the problems that they have in the social domain are, but also that there's a variation in the severity of it. Mm-hmm. And so you can you already start to see, okay, this this is a complicated disorder. So to get a handle on, right? What's the so what's the sort of age of onset or, or course of it? Because I'd sort of read, I'd read two things around it, which was that there's a group that there are problems pretty much from birth, mm. uh, and then there's a group that's around things of eighteen to twenty four months, yeah, have what which... what they call like a regression, exactly, yeah. Yeah, a lot of the time when you see people who have been diagnosed with autism, that's the pattern that you you describe. It tends to be around that toddlerhood where more of those social behaviours are developing, mm-hmm. and people start to notice that. Something's, Something's not amiss. quite, yeah, not quite going as expected. Yeah, and um, boys versus girls. What's the numbers? Because it's not even, is it? No, it's not. It's four to one is what's written in the DSM. And then there's been a bit of discussion lately about it. It used to be ten to one, so ten boys to one girl. Mm. Now we're down to four to one. And then there's been more discussions about whether it's three to one. But it's a it's a whole hoopla. But it essentially. Boys tend to have autism more frequently more than yeah. more frequently than girls, and it tends to be picked up earlier than girls. So what I wanted to talk about now was the history of autism. It's interesting because it shows a scientific community grappling 
with how to describe and characterize this complex set of traits and really kind of get, give you guys an overview of how we've got to the point where we've got these criteria that we just ran through of autism spectrum disorder because it hasn't always been, it wasn't autism spectrum disorder until recently it was termed something else. Personally, as a clinician, I find the process of how disorders are recognized really kind of interesting. Like, you know, it's this time when we know we knew much less about the human condition and you could be a clinician working in a hospital somewhere or something and just write a case study and discover a disorder. Like, you know, there's yeah, something... and it's often really you know, reflective of social norms and of all sorts of things going on around it. Like, it's mm. not just about those symptoms often, it's... You yeah. get clues from all sorts of things. And, and also the way that language language mm. has developed. And even across, as I'll talk about a little bit later, the even in the time that this was first came to be as a diagnosis in the 1980s, the way in which we think about mental health problems has changed and the brain has changed and that actually changes the way in which we then theorize around them. It's quite interesting. The, the other side to this is that the, the ASD diagnosis is a label that has loaded connotations. Like, you know, there's, it's been flippantly used by celebrities in some cases around, you know, wanting to excuse bad behavior or it's, mm. you know, it's derogatory in fashion. Like, you know, and there's a lot of whipped up fear about, is my child autistic? And so I think it's a good place to sort of start about how how do we work this out because that sort of opens the door into thinking about well what's happening here so the word autism what's you know the classic we're doing an essay <laughs> thing right <laughs> so it's like let's define the topic so but the the word autism comes from the greek word autos uh, which means self right and this was first used by a chap, Bueller, in the 1900s and to describe people with schizophrenia and how they had this unusual self-centered quality and like to describe their pattern of social withdrawal. Cut to 1943 in Baltimore in the United States and a child psychiatrist named Leo Kanner used the term autism to convey children's apparent unusual lack of social interest in a landmark paper. So this was called Autistic Disturbances of Effective Contact. And did a study on 11 preschool children describing it or believed that it was a congenital condition. So that would be a condition present from birth. And many of the characteristics he described were still relevant are still relevant today. So early onset, so before 30 months, lack of effective contact, repetitive routines, need for sameness, mutism, so that would be not talking. And what's been interesting is that the number of children who are mute has dropped significantly with early intervention. I think it was mm. like, I was like about half was a, it was a number I read initially, yeah. and that's improved. And language not intended for communication with others. He thought it was a failure of development, and he was comparing it like we were talking about with the, the social, the theories that time around schizophrenia, which was thought to be a developmental regression, mm. which is such a odd turn of phrase nowadays. It is. But around the same time, a guy called Hans Asperger, who's also a child psychiatrist, this was in 1944, he wrote a research paper for a medical school. It was his dissertation. It was on four kids aged 6 to 11. So these were eccentric, normal IQ, fluent in language, but poor conversation skills, odd pedantic speech, little facial expression, the clumsy, like physically clumsy, resistant mm -hmm. to change, circumscribed interests, pronounced social impairment, and a marked lack of common sense. 
So sort of sounding pretty similar, right? He, he referred to it as autistic personality disorder in childhood or autistic psychopathy. So that might sound a bit weird, but I think that that would be to do with sort of a lack of care or empathy for other people. Mm. His dissertation was written in German and wasn't widely known. And this remained the case for about 40 years until Wing published a review of it in 1981, citing these cases and described several adults as having Asperger's syndrome, who'd previously been diagnosed with autism. So we keep talking about the DSM. So the Diagnostic Statistical Manual is the, like I call it the big book of mental disorders, right? Mm. And so this is where we've got all the criteria. And so they've gone through, we're, so we're on the fifth iteration and it was, autism was first described or included in DSM-3, which is in 1980. So this is a disorder that, you know, we're in 2020 now, so it's only been around for 40 years mm. that's been available for clinicians to diagnose people with. And it was, put into the chapter called Pervasive Developmental Disorder section. Just as a complete side, Amy, I think mm. the jump from DSM-2 to DSM-3 was a big, big change. Yes. And then DSM-3, 4, and 5 have been consistent, whereas mm. I think that the, it was much more <laughs> – the jump from 2 to 3 was much more scientific, even it was though there's big problems with it. So before the third DSM, the only – official diagnostic category for severely disturbed kids was childhood schizophrenia so autistic kids were often given this diagnosis which would would have been completely incorrect Mm. so just prior to this time and also i'm just thinking it must have like it makes me curious whether it raised what the prevalence of schizophrenia in childhood was recorded as yep yep yeah, it's it's it's, it's not a common diagnosis in childhood, but if you add it in autism, kids yeah. with autism, yeah, yeah, I've de- certainly never heard of a case of childhood schizophrenia. So Wing and a colleague Gould in 1979 noticed three sets of deficits, which this then became known as Wing's triad. So, which is sort of considered characteristic for autism. So, that's this deficit of social understanding, communication, symbolic play, or imagination, and so they noticed these were more common in kids with stereotyped behaviours who were in special education classes. This and other research led Wing to conclude that autism was closer to the term they used was mental retardation than schizophrenia and that it was you know, on a spectrum. So what's curious about autism is that it's a very reliable and validated disorder, but it it presents in this variability, right? So normally when you've got a a disorder that has a lot of variability in the way it's expressed, the reliability of is this really a disorder and blah, 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 blah. There's a lot of debate. So Mm. our discussion on borderline personality kind of covered some of that. So we jump forward to 1994, the DSM-4, and Asperger's was included as a separate category to autism. And this was good from the perspective in that it, it developed, it meant there was a lot of research that went into this group of people. There is debate and or controversy about whether Asperger's is a discrete entity or is it part of a spectrum of disorders that includes autism. And certainly we see a big overlap between high-functioning autism and what we would be calling Asperger's. And it's sort of difficult to differentiate between the two. Even when DSM-4 was around and being used, autism spectrum disorder sort of became to be used even though it wasn't at a quote-unquote official diagnosis. Mm. 
with the classification of autism and later Asperger's, they both became increasingly recognized clinically. So like I grew up, I was born in 79. And so I grew up in the 80s. And outside of the film Rain Man, I don't reckon I really heard of autism until university, I reckon. Mm. Yeah, Uh, I don't remember anyone at school, like it being said that someone had autism at school or anything like that when I was growing up. And and I'm I'm not even sure that I knew much about autism until I hit postgrad, I mm. reckon. So you know that would have been in the two thousands. But now, like I've got children of my own, and there's talk about children being on the spectrum. It it it's interesting how the awareness of that has has come, and it's mm. it's very much present. So I think that it's probably more an awareness of clinicians and awareness by educators around this is something we need to look out for and now we actually know that we can look out for it you know whether the criteria are perfect or not is another discussion but mm. we're picking up something yeah so within dsm-5 there was this now the change to autism spectrum disorder so this merging of disorders so this was sort of getting back to that idea of was asperger's reliably and validly different to autism you know and there was conflicting results around that so we're not going to go into that because it's really complicated it is yeah (laughs) Um, fascinating if you want to have an understanding of really good neuro and social cognition research you couldn't find a better topic than than autism Mm. it's really really fascinating so the proponents of wrapping these two together is that more accurately reflects this continuum of symptoms and seems to be a bit more simplified and more reliable you know having one term rather than say asperger's and autism can help with communication and and that kind of things but there are some issues with that and so you know i'm i'm sort of agnostic about whether things are good or bad around it sort of more sort of to describe it which is that you know diagnostically some of the individuals with asperger's would no longer meet the criteria for asd and that has a flow-on effect of making some of them not eligible for services anymore mm. or reducing what they're eligible for. Because y- mm. you were telling me that services are frequently based on a diagnosis. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And for a lot of accessing services in Australia, you need to have the diagnosis and then have the diagnosis early. So, for example, the child team at my work, which is separate from the mental health team I'm in, cuts off intervention for things like autism at seven years old. So if you're diagnosed past that point or say at six and a half, you get six months worth of support rather than you could have it from two to seven. Mm. So it, it makes a big difference to accessing those early intervention services and support in schools as well. You have to have a diagnosis. Yeah. So, I mean, so this is to put a number, a number on it. We found a meta-analysis, so that looked at 14 studies looking at how this change criteria impacted and found that uh, basically a third of individuals who'd previously been diagnosed with autistic disorder, Asperger's or a pervasive development disorder, not otherwise specified, a mouthful um <laughs> wouldn't meet criteria for dsm5 asd so basically the, the reason for this reduction is that more symptomology more symptoms is needed to qualify for the diagnosis so i'm not sure if i need an example of that but basically like asd requires two areas of restricted repetitive behavior whereas like asperger's only requires it in one area there's some other mm. other things as well but i think you get sort of the gist of it yeah so basically, ASD is a higher bar. A diagnosis of ASD is a higher bar than Asperger's. 
So mm. there seems to be like a bias that DSM criteria seem to miss those with high IQs, and I'll talk about that in the theories, and also milder forms of Asperger's or ASD yeah, sort of seem to get missed by these new criteria. Mm. There's some implications for research, like basically, you know, that there's this whole literature on Asperger's and it's now like, where does that go? And mm. What happens there? But then the pros around it are that the past system was too broad and, you know, if you're really wanting to research something, it's better to have it tighter and more reliable, reduces the diversity in research findings or that would be the mm. theory. Within the community of, of people with autism and Asperger's, there are pros and cons. Hopefully, this fosters a stronger sense of community, reduces division, brings together people who have common experiences but had been previously separated by diagnosis, right? Everyone's got ASD now, so we're all in it together. The, you know, the cons with that is this idea of like narrowing the spectrum, taking away the diversity within it, and then I guess the stigma of autism, the label of autism and the worry about that. And uh, I mean, perhaps you can talk to it more, but the people with Asperger's like being called Aspie. Mm. You know, they like that label. Yeah, when the change came in, there was there were a lot of people who had the diagnosis of Asperger's who really felt really uncomfortable with the diagnosis being changed to autism because it was seen as a positive or something that was less judged more broadly, yep. and they felt like that descriptor really described who they were and how it fit with their sense of self. I was looking even, so it's been seven years and I was on a forum the other day on Facebook for child psychologists and someone was talking about whether there was any room in a report to write that someone had Asperger's because they really did not want the report to be written if it said that they had autism and there was sort of a discussion about where the ethics of that lay because it was really distressing to them the idea that they would have autism not Asperger's mm. um, so yeah I think it's something that that still plays out a fair bit even though it's been quite a while yeah yeah So you've talked about the various changes in diagnosis what about the theories that go with it what do people think throughout the history about what caused autism yeah so for several decades after it was sort of first recognized the theories were really around inept parenting right mm. so this autism being caused by bad parenting the term that was used in, in one of the texts i looked at was refrigerator mother yeah which is wow what a what a pejorative term um, yeah. and maternal deprivation so and of course what they would have done and what they did was treated by psychoanalysis of the mother or removal of the child to long-term psychodynamic treatment. So, and these approaches were described in the book as misdirected and harmful and, quote, remain a black mark on the field, which was really strong language yeah. that you don't see often in psychology texts, which are often quite dry. No. But these ideas still persist to this day. So... In preparing for this podcast, just by chance, there was a post on one of the forums I'm, I'm on and there was a, a psychologist was commenting about the fact that they didn't believe that autism was not from the environment and that it was believing that it wasn't biological in basis mm. and... Uh, <laughs> which was just really kind of concerning given that there is just a huge amount of research that supports this distinction. Mm. So some of that is that like in the 60s, they discovered elevated whole blood serotonin in 
individuals with autism. So that would suggest sort of a basis for the disorder. And around the same time, there was a parent advocate who argued and arguing that if it's biological, it needs empirical research and, and different treatment to what was going on. In the 70s, they found that children with this disorder had significant intellectual and social deficits, right? And that they were high risk for epilepsy and abnormal brain function. And they'd also researched, sort of investigated this idea of parenting and found that mothers of children with autism are not inept. Mm. Right? So you can imagine the guilt that a family would have and, and also like the, the medical system would have been piling on that guilt. And, Absolutely. And, and you could just imagine the, the heartbreak that those families went through around not only having trying to grapple with a child that is different and and mm. and that brings complexity to their life but that also that they would feel bad about that so generally speaking research indicates autism's polygenic influences like complex ones and so this expression of which is influenced throughout childhood and by chance environmental events which to my reading like i did university level genetics and <laughs> complex <laughs> i don't think yeah. we really know is probably the thing no like we know that it's not a hundred percent genetic and it's not a hundred percent environmental either through the the classic psych favorite of twin studies mm. of looking at pairs of pairs of twins and seeing that you're far more likely to have autism if your identical twin also has autism but it's not a hundred percent it's mm. not that both in that pairing have autism and it's not that growing up in the same household means that you have autism either it's it's definitely complex yeah but but also that you do have a higher likelihood right so definitely you know that um i worked with a family and the husband probably had was high functioning mm. and then two of the children had it and they thought that the third who was a girl had it but then they realized she was probably mimicking mm. their behavior and then as she grew up she was and mimic- there tends to be that family pattern mm. and certainly it's interesting at work because I'll often meet a child who has that diagnosis and then I'll be doing some family therapy and I'll realise that the parent has traits or has perhaps the more high-functioning end of autism because I'll be explaining a concept and I'll need to break it down in the same way that I would have to break it down for their kid mm-hmm. in a really sort of concrete, like this happens, then this, then this, rather yep. than a, a broader, looser kind of description. Yeah, how interesting. So we've been descriptive about how someone with ASD behaves And what we wanted to talk about was some theory about what could be going on internally, which leads us to cognitive theories about autism. So I think Hunter's going to talk to us about theory of mind, and then I'm going to wrap up this theory session with a bit of a discussion about where we're at now in thinking about what's going on in ASD. Yeah, yeah. So I realize I've been talking a lot, but the theory stuff is sort of something that I I find quite interesting. Um, Mm. So... Cognitive theories around autism. So I, I first came across this. Actually, probably I, it was in third year of my undergraduate. That's probably the first time I really kind of came across autism, I would have said. And theory of mind, which is one of the first theories to that was developed to explain what's going on. It's got some limitations, but I think it's quite useful to think about when you are thinking about autism as a concept and what's going on for somebody. In the 80s, so this is where context of a theory is quite interesting. So mm. in the 80s, 
the intent was to, to determine a single underlying difference, right? That, that would explain all the features of autism, which is a pretty big task. <laughs> it like, is. It's like, just, just bite off a lot there, yeah. researchers. Especially when you consider the, even just those two separate chunks. Oh, of- yeah. Issues, it's yeah. <laughs> Particularly if you think about something like depression, which is far less complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still not. We can't find an underlying yeah. difference. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so you know they, they had to try and find this gold luxe here where they didn't explain too little because that that's not useful, but they, not too much, right? <laughs> like, mm. You want to explain enough to explain differences between people with autism and people who don't have autism, but could capture the various presentations. Because it's the 80s, it was a deficit model, right? So essentially people were looking to see what had been switched off. This idea that what's wrong, quote unquote, and then maybe it can be fixed or prevented, right? We've moved on from that in this kind of conceptualization. It's also it's also important to remember that this was a time when the brain was viewed fairly modular and autism was viewed as a deficit, right? This is impairment. Now we sort of view, you know, a pattern of differences, right, which is, has positives and negatives in relation to what we would call neurotypical social norms and expectations. So this gets back to the fact that the way that this presents for somebody is, you know, if someone was autistic and lived alone, right, mm. then they could probably just live you know, the, the problems that they would experience would be, I would be guessing, much, much lower, right? Because they're not socially mm-hmm. interacting. There's the less complex social interactions going and, on. Yeah, and you often hear about people who don't receive the diagnosis until after they move in with their first partner mm-hmm. because their first partner is the person who then sees them struggling with things or sees them having what are known as meltdowns or... Kind of like anxiety attacks, but usually a flare-up of that sort of distress around one of those issues that we've spoken about before. Yeah. But no one else would normally see it because it's quite, someone might have learned how to contain it in public. Yeah. But then when they're at home and they're with someone that they're comfortable with, all of a sudden it's kind of like, oh, this seems like an issue. Yeah. So so the social norms and expectations is quite relevant in terms Mm. of how, I was going to say disabling, hopefully that's the right word or impactful um, mm. autism is for somebody, right? So, but despite all those caveats, theory of mind is quite useful, right? So what does that mean? It's the ability to read and interpret cues and context that indicate someone's feelings, thoughts, intentions, and beliefs. So basically that's like, I can look at that skin, a human-shaped person thing over there and infer that they've got a mental state going on, that they're happy, sad, or, or, or whatever, right? And that that mental state then explains their behaviour. Right? Mm. So this idea of I can infer from their behaviour or you know what I'm seeing, the way that they're feeling, and therefore I can predict what's going to happen. Mm. And so you could sort of start to see that then might mean that in in all those clips we played that if they had a better understanding of that going on, then they wouldn't be presenting or acting quite in the way that they do they'd be able Mm. to they'd be more nuanced in the way in which they interact and part of it's kind of knowing getting to understand that your perspective of the world is different from other people's around you that what's going on for you isn't necessarily what's going on for someone else because that's what happens in this is again something you have to learn in early childhood 
it's it, kids are entirely focused on what's going on for them. And like the example I used to use with parents in therapy prior to video calls on phones was have you ever spoken to a toddler or a four or five-year-old on the phone and they've said, I'll oh, look at this and it's a regular phone and they can't get that you can't see what it is that they're pointing at on the phone mm. because they can see it. So they assume that you must be able to see it yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so just to reiterate, that's before we had before Zoom and FaceTime. Um, back, back in the it's olden really days. My metaphor, like it was, it was so perfect, and they'd get it every time. And now I have to go like this is without video phones. You need to update that <laughs> if if you've got a better uh, better metaphor. Two shrinkspod at gmail dot com. So, <laughs> so to demonstrate that you have theory of mind or you struggle with that conclusively, you have to be able to predict someone's behavior or understand someone else's behavior based on them acting on what's called a false belief. So that is not the real situation. So this led to the development of the Sally-Ann false belief task, right? So this is a classic social cognition task. I, I loved social cognition in undergraduate. <laughs> it's great lecturer yoshi he was fantastic such a difference oh yeah he's great so i want you to imagine listeners i want you to imagine you see two puppets sally and Anne, and there's a box and a basket next to them sally leaves the scene but before she does she has a ball in her hands and she puts the ball in her basket when she's gone Anne, the other puppet moves the ball from the basket to the box and hiding it from view right so the box is closed so the participant then must correctly identify where Sally, that's the puppet that's left, when she comes back, where she's going to look for the ball when she comes back. So the correct answer is the basket because that's where Sally remembers leaving it, even though you, the participant, knows it's in the box. Right? So there was a landmark paper by Baron Cohen et al. in 1985, and they found a significantly higher proportion of autistic kids answered incorrectly compared with a group of typically developing children and also a, a group of learning disabled children. So when I say seminal, there's been over 8,000 citations, <laughs> which is... It's a popular one. Amazing. I think my, my <laughs> doctoral research has got maybe 10, I'm not sure. Ooh, double digits. <laughs> um, I think that one of them's in a review, so it doesn't really count. Uh, so this... Theory is really popular because it makes clear predictions about why being social would be difficult and when being social or what social interactions would be easy, right? So people with autism use gestures less often to influence someone's mental state, so say responding to someone's embarrassment, but will do gestures to manipulate others' behavior. So they'll signal to say to someone else to you know, be quiet or to, to go away, right? So that makes sense if you kind of think about that. It's also appealing because it gets back to that wings triad I talked about before. That So the theory would be, according to this, they can't meta-represent, which is seen in this lack of pretend play. Social differences arise because they can't understand that others have independent minds, resulting in their odd communication style because... You know, they can't understand these, their intentions or recognize others' behavior as representing this internal state. It, it all sort of fits in a nice way. This, at this point, though, it should be noted that this theory and everyone and clinical experience with this group and family members and all that stuff is, uh, would detest this, that, that people with autism do actually care 
about other people and they do actually have interest in others. They clearly do. The idea is that the usual system for mind reading that that non-autistic people have is just not working in the same kind of way. And do when you, you break it down, like it's it's a complex thing. You know, oh, you have so to... complicated. Yeah, you have to read what the other person could be indicating with their behavior. Yeah. And then you have to empathize with that. And then you have to work out how to respond. Yep. Like it's not it's not as simple as going, oh, I'm going to hug that person because they're sad. Mm. Like you have to break it down into so many different bits. Yep. Yeah, because like a lot of time as a parent, I'm coaching the children around mm. that. And what's fascinating as an adult doing clinical work is you're often saying, so do you think that when, you know, your partner was acting that way, do you think they were getting what was going on and maybe you need to tell them because you're not expressing your emotions or, you know, have you asked your partner why they were crying or even in personal life saying, you know, you know, you probably need to do this thing to help. And working with parents and kids, it's similar. There's a lot of, you know, I wonder what was going on for that person when this, this happened. What do you reckon, you know? Yeah. There's such a classic therapist question of like, huh, I wonder what was going on for them at that point. (laughs) And, and, and this is like dawning, like, oh God, (laughs) reaction that happens. I did once have a, a child mimic me by saying exactly that they picked up my pen from the table and um, held it in the way that I hold it and went, I wonder if, <laughs> oh God, <laughs> that's oh, me. I, I had a patient, yeah, basically the same kind of thing and then said, and then you, what you do is you take off your glasses and then you polish them with the tissues and then you, and then you flip them back on. It's just like, oh my God. Um, she, did, she didn't have autism. <laughs> she was just observant. Ab- observant of me and my uh, restrictive repetitive behaviours. So whilst it's useful, there are actually some limitations and, and I didn't realise these limitations until I was doing the reading. I, I don't know if you, have you, I mean, do you use this as an example in, in your work with, with families and, and, and children? Theory of mind? Yeah. Yeah, I use it most often the times that I use it is when parent is having trouble understanding why it is that a small child or sometimes an older kid who has autism is doing something despite the fact that to the parent it seems obvious that there's going to be this terrible consequence. Yeah. And going, okay, so, you know, this is something that doesn't really develop properly in most kids until five or so. And so they're going to have trouble knowing that if they do that, that then that person is going to be upset. And so I often use it in those ways of going, okay, we actually have to help kids. Like you were saying, you have to help them work that out and work their way through those social things and try and figure out how their behavior might have impacts on others or vice versa. Mm, Exactly. They don't just naturally do it from, you know, toddlerhood. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's. I think I, I, I've always thought about theory of mind as a, a good example of a psychological theory mm. about behaviour and internal states and 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 the mind, cognition, things like that. So, I don't know if you're aware of some of the limitations of it, but one of the problems with this theory is how do we explain that some people with autism can pass the test? Right? Are they working it out via another route? which is possible. So they've still got the the quote-unquote deficit and they've worked out another way. So one of the texts I was reading said uh, they had were doing this test with an intelligent girl who had autism 
and she wanted to say box, but remembered that psychologists ask tricky questions, so said the opposite. <laughs> I love right? that. Said basket, right? So in that case, then theory of mind would still stand as an explanation, right? Mm. But if some people can, with ASD, can infer mental states, then it could be that the acquisition of theory of mind is delayed and then this creates problems for the rest of lifespan so that might seem funny you might think oh well you know if they, if you just learn it later you'll be fine but the example they talked about was that if you learn a second language later in life let's say if you learn it as a teenager mm. then or even an adult you know that can be frustrating it can be hard to take longer take takes a lot more mental effort harder when you're tired and this is what people with asd report and experience is that there are times when social cognition social interactions are easier and harder to, mm. to do so if performance on on this theory of mind task improves then that would also fit with the developmental delay hypothesis but you could also have the thing of success on task is associated with intelligence then that might indicate more towards the alternate strategy the mm. alternate route so what's important to think about though is that those kinds of options aren't actually mutually exclusive. They could be both operating, right? Third possibility is that this process mentalizing, determining other states, mental states, is hard because they've got additional processing difficulties. So from what I read, and I'm absolutely no expert, is that the processing demands of this kind of stuff isn't that high. Right. Mm. Like, so basically, what that means is that if you think about your brain as a computer, right, like it's a program that you can run and it won't tax the computer too much and it won't, mm. you know, won't stall your computer. What they found is that difficulties in mentalization can occur in other groups, but without sort of the social problems. So, kids who are under three, kids with learning disabilities, and also children who are born deaf into a non-signing home they have problems sort of conceptualizing mentalizing what's going on for other people but they can still make friends Mm. so what this sort of leads to is perhaps failure on this task is due to other issues like executive control or executive function right so if this is a key problem in autism if theory of mind is the key problem in autism then also the other problem that you kind of encounter is how does it explain the other features of autism like the restrictive repetitive behaviors and interests right Mm -hmm. one possibility is that this is the way in which someone deals with the confusing social world right so it's the way they calm themselves that kind of thing or alternatively they have these interests and they absorb all the cognitive space that you would use normally for processing and understanding social stuff Mm. right so it's sort of competing theory so in terms of teaching thing around this is the way that psychologists try and break stuff down let's just test out different hypotheses around what might be going on this other theory it also could be that this is executive function issue so which is this like so executive function is a term that's loosely sort of about like the process of oversight over all the cognitive functions so if you've got difficulty in that realm then you have a whole lot of problems with your cognition you know the way in which you think and that those deficits are present in autism executive function deficits but it's it's unclear whether that's a sole deficit. It's really complicated, I think mm. it would be. <laughs> I would not. Sometimes I say on this pod, we could definitely do another podcast on that. It's like, I'm not doing it. It's no. <laughs> no, it's just too much. So, so, I mean, I think, look, I know I've been talking for a long period of time, but basically theory of mind, it's useful 
to think mm. about and understand in terms of understanding someone with autism, but there are sort of limitations as to how much it actually explains. Mm. And I'm going to take a break from talking for a bit. And Amy's <laughs> going to tell us a little bit about neurodiversity and current theories. I'll start off by talking about neurodiversity because it really plays into what we've been talking about, about theories about what's going on and ties into the history and the way of viewing autism as well. Recently, there's been more consideration about whether autism should be considered a disorder or simply another way of being and perceiving the world. The neurodiversity movement says that rather than thinking that someone with autism as disordered or abnormal, we should consider that there's no normal, that there's just different. You know, there's no single way to be normal. And this movement applies to a whole bunch of different things like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, autism, dyslexia, all sorts of things. And the idea is that it's destigmatizing, non-pathologizing, and it takes a more balanced view of people, that it's not just about what they struggle with, but the whole picture. So this perspective focuses on people improving their quality of life and not trying to change behaviors that are unusual, but not harmful. So, you know, if not making eye contact with people in the same way that neurotypical people do isn't harmful, then why do we need to work on changing it or if you having an interest in trains isn't getting in the way of the other things that you want to do like having friends or going to your job or things like that do we actually need to work on changing your interest in trains or containing that so instead people should receive support for issues that impact their sense of well-being and functioning what's important to them rather than what the rest of us say is important So it validates that many people with autism see it as part of their identity and not one that they'd like to eliminate. Mm. I mean, you could imagine that you would encounter a lot of resistance from somebody, like as in, because it's like, why would I change this? I don't want to change this. This works for me. Yeah, this isn't a problem. Yeah. Even before you get to discussing whether it's possible to change stuff. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And it fits with findings that people with autism tend to have more positive emotions about autism. What I found interesting about this research is that, you know, endorsing the idea of neurodiversity is related to more positive feelings about autism, but it's not related to feeling any less negative emotions about it. So you, you might still have negative emotions about aspects of your autism, but you've got far more positive ones than someone who doesn't subscribe to this theory, Mm -hmm. which kind of makes sense to me. So in terms of what we think now about autism, a lot of it, there's a bunch of it that hasn't changed and there's a bunch that, that has. So there's a strong biological basis for autism. So we know that there are some genes involved, that there's some differences in gene expression, brain structures, strength of connection between brain regions. And there appears to be differences in the communication or integration between different neurons and parts of the brain. This is interesting. Just before we started to record, I received an email with a research update that was looking at exactly this and looking at that research keeps on finding different patterns of connection. But the thing that keeps on coming up again and again is that you can tell the difference between the brains of people with autism and without. It's just that it seems to be different within people, a little Mm. bit like the symptoms are different within people. So we still think that 
the biological bases of autism are impacted by environment, but we don't know how. We know that it's not refrigerator parenting or any of those kind of things, or that it's not caused by the environment. But there's a little bit of a gap between what genes and biological elements can explain and what we see. We also still think that theory of mind is central to understanding it, but it's about nuance rather than it being absent. So because it's such a complex series of processes, it might be more difficult if you have trouble integrating steps of things. So if one of those things is missing, you know, between that noticing someone else has got something going on, working out what that is, empathising, then expressing, one step of that goes and the whole system kind of falls down. Mm. It's also There's also work showing that people who have autism can complete theory of mind tasks and read the emotions of other people with autism, but not people who are neurotypical. Mm. And that neurotypical people can read other neurotypical people, but not people with autism. So there's something about that group yep. bias that we have more trouble reading other people who are different from us. Yeah, yeah, right. Sensory-wise, there's a view that having those differences in sensory processing and repetitive behaviours and things like that provide order and control in the world that's chaotic and confusing, the kind of adaptive ways of coping when overwhelmed. Yep. And then the last thing is that we know that in general terms, our brains are shaped by experience, particularly in childhood. So whatever we focus on and are exposed to is the most strengthened and the bits we don't need aren't. So the language example you gave before is perfect in that we all have the ability to, to learn and speak just about any language sound when we're little. And then that slowly reduces to favour the ones that are in our language. So, for example, I have terrible trouble with the R sound in French mm -hmm. because that R sound isn't in English and it took mm -hmm. me a lot of practice yep, yep. to learn that Yeah, yep, because I learned that as an adolescent. So it's also possible that people with autism place low value on social content and they're more interested in other things. So they don't just develop those same skills or the neural connections in their brain as someone who's interested in social interactions. They're not, you know, focusing on those activities and so then aren't developing those skills either practically or physically. Mm. So it's still quite complicated and there's still no this causes this narrative. And I think more and more we're moving away from that and more to let's understand the pattern and how we work with different aspects of it that are distressing. Yeah, I mean, I think... Than, let's stop <laughs> this thing from occurring. Yeah, I mean, I think we would have found... I say this, but I mean, I think you would have found a, a, a singular cause if there was a singular cause by now. Mm. You know, it's, it sounds to me like there are a lot of things that can go awry in the quote-unquote normal development that then can lead to this condition. And I think I, I really like as a clinician this idea around what do we have to change and what do we, mm. why do we have to change some things? You know, is that really a problem? And mm. that movement towards just accepting and that kind of thing. And it's got quite a behavioural base to it that I think both you and I are really drawn to with that, okay, that thing serves a function. Does yeah. it harm? Yeah. Can we focus on the thing that actually causes harm or that could make your life better rather than that thing that you've got some judgment about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So yeah, let's get some movement with behaviour. <laughs> that kind of, yeah. Yeah, and who and who's who's the problem? Who's it causing the problem for? Is it the yeah. is it the individual or is it other people? And other people are important to take into account for sure, yeah. but 
but sometimes. Yeah. yeah. For the last section, we're going to talk about myths about autism. We thought of four main ones, so we can have a bit of a chat about each one. The first one is that people with autism have low IQs or the other end where they might have difficulties with a whole bunch of cognitive issues, but it's that idiot savant idea where there'll be one thing that they're particularly good at that they're better at than just about anybody else. What we actually see is a range of intellectual abilities in people with autism, the same that you see in neurotypical people. Part of the diagnosis is specifying whether there's any deficits in cognition, but what we often see is an uneven profile, which means that someone might be great at one thing, like spatial reasoning, but they'll struggle to use words to reason. We also see a gap between ability and then how it's used, the function. So for example, you might see someone who scores really highly on verbal reasoning, but they're struggling socially and they're struggling with the communication side of things. So they're not able to communicate the internal verbal thought process to other people. Yeah. So I think what Amy's saying there is that they can use the verbal process to do Mm. things, but get them to do it socially for a social context and they can't do it. Yep. So So it might appear that there's an issue there when there's actually not. No, so if you actually look at it in a more nuanced way. The, exactly. the, the other side to what we're talking about here is this idiot savant. So there's a myth around people with autism all have this idiot savant-like ability. So what that means is that they are exceptional in one particular set of cognitive processes. This myth really largely comes from this scene. It comes from Rain Man where one of the characters drops a box of toothpicks and and so he's looked at a pile of toothpicks and quickly counted them up. And this this does happen, this level of thing. I worked with a patient and she had a child with autism and he was really good with dates and so she she gave me the example of he she had a oncology follow up in six months time and said oh you know 22nd of November and and she said oh you know what day is that and he's like oh that's a that's a Wednesday <laughs> she went when she went to look at it in the calendar he was correct so that is possible and and does actually happen but the the myth around it is that it, it it's in everyone and that's not the case in fact it's it's relatively uncommon as far as i understand mm. the next myth that we had was that people with autism can't have or don't want relationships or friendships they actually often really want friendships and often have difficulty understanding why it's not working so my clinical experience of that was working with a cancer patient who was a young person and they 
yeah, that was actually what we talked about. We didn't talk about the cancer at all. Mm. And so they can have really high expectations. You know, someone must meet all the same things that I that that I like as as me, or they have issues misreading people. So you could imagine that if you have difficulties reading people, then you, it'd be difficult to maintain a relationship, or you would think that you are in a relationship when you're not actually. When that person's not interested in you. I mean, there's a lot of movies and art about the fact that, you know, a male or a female thinks that the other person is is or is not interested in you. But um, It's a common social. It, it's, it is a human condition. Like I was saying before, it's pretty common for me to see young people going from primary to secondary school, that sort of start of adolescence, whose strategies to navigate those social situations don't work anymore and they're having trouble. You know, all of the things that they had before and often more sort of interest-based things are starting to change and it's really difficult to match that. And so I see a lot of bullying, depression, anxiety, that sort of thing. And for the ones who are struggling at school and might have meltdowns or have, you know, these bursts of anxiety at school, then that can have a pretty negative social impact as well. The next myth is that girls don't have autism. So as we spoke about at the start, it's diagnosed four times as much in boys as girls. And there seems to be a few reasons for this. There's a mixture of different prevalence rates. So anywhere from three to one to 10 to one. And there's been some criticism lately that the tools and measures that are used to diagnose autism were primarily based on boys because it was thought to be just boys who had this disorder. So all the criteria have been Uh, normed against boys. They've found that girls who are diagnosed tend to have an accompanying intellectual disability. They have more relatives with autism or they have more language impairments than boys do. So it suggests that the way the symptoms are expressed is more subtle for girls and it's only picked up when there are other factors involved that then people start questioning whether this is going on. And why it's important is that we know that earlier support is related to better outcomes down the track. So if girls are diagnosed after those early interventions aren't there anymore, then that's an issue. There's also a theory that girls need to inherit more factors related to autism to meet the criteria and to develop autism. So there seems to be some sort of genetic buffer, but they're not entirely sure what that is yet. And then the final thing is, is that there's clinical work that shows that girls use more masking or camouflaging. So they're taught how to mimic social interactions more than boys. And there's a whole bunch of ideas about, you know, whether that's that socially we expect girls to show more of that social reciprocity than what we do for boys. And so if that doesn't happen, then there's more sculpting of that there's more guidance or judgment or all sorts of things around that if it's not happening for girls and so they often learn ways of responding to things which I think fits in with that thing that you know a lot of the time I see girls who are heading into high school and it's worked quite well having a set of templates of how to respond up until then Mm -hmm. and then they start things start getting more complicated and those templates sort of fall through yeah and last bit is that girls with autism have higher rates of other disorders than boys do. So it's possible that what are symptoms of autism, like say a restricted diet, are viewed as eating disorder behaviours rather than autism. Exactly. Because people are not looking for it, yeah. 
Mm, exactly. Yeah, it's, in- it's interesting to think about whether it's chicken or an egg, but like that girls are more quote-unquote social at a younger age than, than boys are. And you could then sort of see, you know, is that because they're innately focused that way and so therefore they're better at it or is it that they socially expected that and they, therefore they attend to it more and mimic better mm. or something like that. There was a documentary ages ago and it was just filming a group of girls with autism talking about it and it was an Australian mm. show. Yeah, I've seen that. And yeah. yeah, it was interesting because they all kind of went, yeah, because you know when someone says this that you're supposed to say this. <laughs> and it wasn't that it was what they genuinely re- wanted to respond to. It was that they'd learned that that's the appropriate response. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. They remembered the template. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. But when the template changes. The last one is... Most controversial? Uh, oh, most controversial. It's not. It's most controversial and actually the least controversial. So I'm going to try and keep the disdain out of my voice. Um, but the 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 myth is that vaccines cause autism. I've got a long answer to this, but the short answer is it's not. It doesn't, and that there is no evidence that vaccines cause autism. This is particularly important given that we are all worldwide currently waiting, hoping that there'll be a vaccine for COVID. Mm. So rather than me try and write something (laughs) that covers this, I found a fact sheet from health.gov.au. It's called What About Autism? I'm going to sort of give you a pricey of it, but large number of high-quality studies have compared the health of large numbers of vaccinated children to unvaccinated children over many years. So the largest study included half a million, so 537,303 children born in Denmark, and they found that unvaccinated children were just as likely to develop autism as vaccinated children. When this results, this study was combined with results of nine other studies to include medical information from nearly 1.5 million children living all around the world, researchers were able to confirm that vaccination could not be causing autism. So where did it all come from? In 1998, a research group in the UK led by Andrew Wakefield suggested that some children who had received the MMR, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, had gone on to develop bowel disease, developmental disorders such as autism. The results of this research had only included 12 children. Right? And it was published in a respected medical journal, but in 2004, they retracted their claim, the authors retracted it, retracted the claim that there was any association between vaccination and autism. The paper was withdrawn from the journal in 2010 after the General Medical Council had found the results reported had been proven to be false. So these things in research are uncommon, mm. <laughs> to say the least. A retraction and an apology was printed in the journal in the same year. Some people then suggested that perhaps that there was a preservative in vaccines. So that they were saying, well, it's not MMR, but you know, there's a preservative in vaccines that might be linked to autism, right? So the preservative that, that has been talked about is thermosol, which is a salt that contains a tiny amount of mercury. So the mercury salt in this in thermosol is not the kind of mercury that accumulates in the human body. None of the vaccines given to children in Australia are packaged in the, the multi-dose containers that would contain this, this product. And a study of Children born in Yokohama in Japan found that removing MMR vaccines from childhood vaccination program didn't change the rates of autism there. Mm. So, I mean, I've read a lot of research in my time and that's that's possibly some of the most conclusive research I've ever yeah. come across. It's, it's pretty rare to find 
study after study that that finds the same result. Yeah. And I think in the community, there's a bit of a confirmation bias thing going on as well in that because the symptoms often become apparent around the time when kids are getting the bulk of their vaccines. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, well, it must be the vaccine's fault. Yeah. and, and um, Rather than these two things happen to happen at this point in development. Yeah. And, and I had a mother of children with autism and she believed this and like, mm. as in, and, and she, you could see that for her like i said to her and said no no that's not true and she was pleased to know that because i think she'd really felt quite bad about the mm. fact that that's what had happened because I, mm. you know the the diagnosis unfortunately had created a lot of difficulties for her in her life it's not it's not something that comes without problems for people to maintain this myth this conspiracy mm. theory um the other the other thing that and I, we talked about it on the School of Movies podcast that we mentioned at the top of the show, which is that there's this, it ties back into this neurodiversity thing, which is that there's this fear that our children will be autistic and mm. they won't be perfect. And essentially that if you're saying you don't want to have vaccinations, then you're saying that you are willing to risk your child dying on the off chance that they might be neurodivergent mm. and also risking other people's children exactly these viruses. so yeah so so thank you for sticking with us we said it was going to be an overview this is now one of our longest shows but i feel still an overview but it's so when i said it was a complex topic it we have only given you an overview and there's there's a lot more that we could talk about could have talked about fortunately i don't think my voice is gonna hold out tonight <laughs> so we're gonna go to break we'll come back with a brief things we came across it's intuition it's intuition which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. This is The Break, the section of the show where I irritate Hunter and he immediately is looking at me with a mix of enjoyment and exasperation, so we're right on cue. <laughs> In the break, we beg you for affection and compliments through the medium of iTunes or your podcast app, giving us rates and reviews, or by contacting us. So you can contact us on twoshrinkspod at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at twoshrinkspod, or you can visit our website and you know scroll through our back catalogue, listen to every possible moment, or <laughs> read about what's going on with us, or see some... COVID resources that I have not opened since I put them on that page. Yeah. It's many options. We've got we've got a lot of different topics that we have covered over the year, a couple of years that we've been doing this. Most recently we did one episode on Star Wars, the characters in Star Wars and diagnosing them. So much fun. Oh my gosh, that was great. That's why we've taken a bit of a break because it was a lot of effort. Um, it, was, it was a lot. <laughs> it was worth it. Uh, it was totally worth it. Uh, but, for you, dear listeners. Yeah, but if you, if you do have some questions uh, or further questions around autism, then please let us know because I think we'd be both quite happy to do another episode on it. Other thoughts, Amy? Uh, no, no, I'm going to keep it contained. All right, let's go. All right. But as we try to widen and make more consistent our description of what we see, as it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena, the explanations become what we call laws instead of simple explanations. 
So we're back from our break and this is things we came across. So if you're not listening to this show before, this is where Amy and I talk about something that has caught our eye in the mm. last however long it has been. So th- So at the moment I at work where I have to wear a surgical mask mm-hmm. and eye protection. I work in a hospital and also I've taken to wearing scrubs, which is just like work pajamas, which is just fantastic. Heaven. Oh, so good. Um, I came across this word, which is in Dutch and I can't speak mm-hmm. Dutch. So, but it's hoshtenshamat, which is a COVID, with confidence. COVID-19 related neologism, the shame you feel when you cough in public. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, because you're not meant to be at work if you've got a cough and, and like you become that like hypervigilant with coughing. Do you, are you having that? Here. Oh. It's spring here. It's spring and I'm prone to, you know, hay fever and, and things like that. And yep. I feel like everybody who's prone to that has been far more self-conscious. <laughs> Yeah, so I so as a result, I then put into the search engine into PsychInfo coughing and anxiety, and saw what came up, and I came across Clifford Rose's 2006 reference to their um, article called mm. "The Neurobiology of Painting: Fainting in Classical Art." <laughs> what they did is they. You know, fainting, which is syncope, is a medical term. It's a temporary mm-hmm. loss of consciousness and posture. So they talked about you know, fainting happens in particular situations, hot crowd environments, yada, yada, yada. I, th- I think for the reason it came up was that coughing and swallowing can mm. actually create a, like a vasovagal syncope. So what, what's interesting in art is that there's lots of instances of epilepsy. People with epilepsy do this thing where they... They, when they're having a seizure, they, they become stiff on one side and they and they point up to the sky. Mm. And I think there's depictions of that in the Sistine Chapel. And they sort of they, it was sort of thought to be to do with like religious kinds of, you know, that they're being summoned, being summoned by God or something mm. like that. So anyway, because fainting is more common than epilepsy, so prevalence of syncope is 22%, whereas epilepsy the prevalence is 0.75, you might think that syncope would be more frequent in classical paintings than, than epilepsy. Mm-hmm. But they did a study and they found it wasn't. Um, <laughs> so they, you know, they were sort of saying, oh, you know, it's less dramatic than a seizure, yep. adds less drama. But when it was portrayed, when fainting was portrayed, it was usually in the context of adding to a scene of high drama and emotion, such as witnessing the crucifixion, that kind of thing. Nice. So, science, Amy, science. Science. Where are you science. taking us? I thought that it was going to be related to that list that you sent me of ways that women had died in classical literature. <laughs> yeah, like being too far from the sea or things like that. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so some of the other ones on that list, Amy, were shawl insufficiency, too many mm. pillows, garden troubles, drawing room anguish, strolling congestion. <laughs> we're very delicate creatures. <laughs> what have you got? Okay. When I was looking for autism stuff, we were talking about restricted interests. And I found a list of what the more common restricted interests were. So, you know, the classic Thomas the Tank Engine, trains in general are pretty popular, various video games. There was a, an article comparing neurotypical groups to groups with autism. And what I found interesting was that there were particular like fan groups that fell into each one. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, you know liking Disney movies fell into autism, but liking Harry Potter fell into neurotypical. Anyway, um, I did find that Pokemon was one that fit into the autism side of things. And so I had a look to see whether there was anything about Pokemon and autism. Didn't find that, but I did find something about Pokemon Go. Did yep. you ever play that? No. When it was a thing? Is it, no. Was that on your phone or something? It was on your phone and you'd wander around in the world and find Pokemon. <laughs> the only memory I've got is that a politician was caught doing that, like in the House of Reps. <laughs> That's yeah. it. Yeah, and there were all these things as well of people like having accidents and all sorts of things because they'd be so focused on catching Pokemon that they'd miss that they were stepping into traffic or going into dangerous locations. They wanted to look at what kind of social elements were playing out in playing Pokemon Go and personality things as well. I was also thinking about this in terms of how much both of us have been playing video games. So... (laughs) What they found, I'm going to skip through it. So essentially they did a bunch of questionnaires with pe- with students who already played Pokemon Go, so they were familiar with it. They got them to play it and they monitored their behaviour in the game for 20 minutes and then they gave them personality questionnaires. So what they found was that greater agreeableness, extroversion, conscientiousness and social competence and less social anxiety predicted more gameplay behaviors that were involved in being engaged with the game so going out there and doing stuff were more common for those people so things like catching more pokemon or going out and visiting various locations where you can pick up kind of bonuses Mm. and things like that and traveling further distances so the people who were more out there were the ones who more out there in their personality were more likely to actually go out yeah right yeah exactly the social anxiety thing played into it in that people who had social anxiety had less catching behavior or catching Pokemon. So when you were near Pokemon, you had to kind of flick on your phone to catch them. Mm. And they, the way they understood this was that they were thinking that there's often like a whole bunch of people trying to catch the same Pokemon at the same time. When it was in its height of things, there'd be a bunch of people. So a couple of times there was one apparently outside my office because my clients would jump up in session (laughs) and run to the window. And sometimes they'd see the client who'd been in there before on the other side of the window, (laughs) both of them pointing their phones at the bushes. (laughs) catch the Pokemon that was in there. Really ruined the whole confidentiality thing. But because there's other people around, if you've got social anxiety, you're worried about what people will think of you Mm -hmm. and will think of your competence. And so people who had social anxiety were less likely to attempt to catch Pokemon because they were embarrassed about other people around them and about getting it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing was that there's a fair amount of collaboration in playing it as well. So if you have better social skills and you're more comfortable with that, then you're able to talk to other people that you run into while you're playing Pokemon Go who might direct you to a new location. And so it kind of involves that interaction between the real world and the game, that if you're able to have those conversations, you can do better in the game than someone who struggles with those kind of things. Mm. Yep. So there you go. There you go. Well, thanks everyone for listening. If you've stuck with us this long, we will be back. Soon. <laughs> you've never been two strings, but.